You're listening to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 AM and 930 AM. During the next hour, the Archdiocese of Chicago brings you conversation about the people, events, and issues that touch our lives. Welcome to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Good morning. I'm Jim Dish with the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office, joining you on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 AM. Every Saturday morning, we bring you highlights of our Catholic Chicago radio programs that air throughout the week. Our broadcast week began with Catholic Schools Today. Co-hosts Dr. Jim Rigg and Mark Teresi recognized Our Lady of Mount Carmel Academy for a national honor it recently received. Joining us in the studio uh, is the principal from Our Lady of Mount Carmel, Shane Stashuk. Stashuk, I'm kicking it in my Polish background here, <laughs> Stashuk. And this year... The U.S. Department of Education honored seven of the Archdiocese of Chicago Catholic Schools with Blue Ribbon Awards, including Our Lady of Mount Carmel Academy. In addition to Our Lady of Mount Carmel receiving their second second Blue Ribbon, congratulations. Thank you. Principal Shane Stashuk received the Terrence H. Bell Award for Outstanding School Leadership. Principal Stashuk was one of 10 principals honored from across the country and the only one from the state of Illinois. Well, congratulations and welcome to WNDZ and Catholic Chicago. And I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Jim Rigg and to welcome Shane and let's move forward. It's dangerous, you know. All right. You know, happy to. No, I, I am so thrilled with the Blue Ribbon Awards, with the Bell Award going to Shane and just... You know, all of the the reasons we have to celebrate the success of our schools. So first of all, congratulations to you, Shane. Thank you. Um, And I I had the honor of uh, joining you in Washington, D.C. in the fall when you received your award from the U.S. Department of Education. It was a a great event there. Um, So um, tell us a little bit about the Blue Ribbon, a bit more detail. What what exactly is it and and how did you achieve the Blue Ribbon at uh, Mount Carmel Academy? Well, I think it's a, it's a recognition and an affirmation that your school is doing really well. And that includes your students, most importantly, your staff and your whole parent community, everyone is working together to get your school to a really high level. Um, it was quite an honor to get it the second time. We were working really hard and it's, it's, it's a challenge to get to a high level. It's even more of a challenge to remain there for six years later to still look back and um, despite some teachers changing and students changing and some programs changing, you're still able to be at a really high level. And, and they first look at academics. You have to have strong academics. And then they look, it's a process, probably about a 12-page application. You have to fill out and write a series of essays on anything from your marketing program to your foreign language program and all the things that um, go into making a school a successful school. Well, and I know it's a, a rigorous application process. It's not easy to get your scores above the threshold that they look for, and it has to be every grade. Uh, but the, the essays are also an important part, and I, I have heard that the, um, the U.S. Department of Ed and CAPE who vet those applications, they look for any reason to disqualify a school. So even, even grammatical or technical, mm-hmm. if there are any of those types of issues, you miss a signature somewhere, uh, you're out. And there are many, many schools that apply for the Blue Ribbon every year and do not get selected. That happened to us in 2012 when we were going for our very first one. We left out one minor answer about a foreign language program and, you know, got docked. But then in 2013, we made that one edit and, and we were good to go. So, How long have you been true. at Mount Carmel? Uh, this is my 15th year. Wow. And what have I, you seen 
from the first year you came to now in terms of curriculum, students? Students are about the same. Kids were great then and they're great now. Um, a couple things, I think the being a city of Chicago school, the pressure on the seventh graders um, for high school placement has grown. Um, it could be a double-edged sword. It puts a little more pressure on them. However, we don't have to fight with them to do homework and things like that. <laughs> so, you know, they, they put a lot of pressure on themselves and their families, uh, but they become really mature students. I think at an earlier stage than when I first got there um, 15 years ago. That's one. That was one of one of the big changes, and I think schools have been asked to do more throughout the year. They want you to parents want you to be able to have really programming from seven a.m. to six p.m. and beyond, and offer a, a lot of things for families and students alike. Well, and I uh, I've worked with you for my four years as superintendent, and I know uh, Shane, you're a, a humble guy. But let's talk a bit more about this the special award that you received, the Terrence H. Bell Award. Uh, what is that award, and and how did you win it? Well, we found we found out. So if you are a blue ribbon school and that's the 50 private schools or the 200 some odd public schools, um, you're eligible to apply for this second award. And so we did. It was another series of essays that required um, someone from the archdiocese writing a letter of recommendation, a parent writing a letter of support, a teacher writing a letter of support and some additional essays. Um, and, And then they're judged and they are selected. And so it was a great honor. And it was really uh, enjoyable to go there. We got to have a private luncheon with the other nine principals from across the country. And it, it was quite a mix from Hawaii to small town Indiana, Chicago, myself. And, and it, w- it was nice to, to learn things about them. Who, who's the namesake, Terrence Bell? Do you know? He, well, he he founded the, the Blue Ribbon Award. And I th- oh. think that was in 1982. He was the Secretary of Education at the time. And it was a time there was a big report that had come out a nation at risk at the time. And, and he felt schools were getting too much negativity and there wasn't a lot of um, the great schools weren't getting recognized. So he founded this award that they would start celebrating and locating and finding uh, excellent schools out there. Well, and the uh, the Bell Award has only been around for a few years. So mm-hmm. it, it came along a ways after the Blue Ribbon was founded. And I, I have to, I still have to verify this, but I do think Shane uh, may be the first Catholic school principal to win the Bell Award, which says something. It's possible. Oh, it sure does. It's possible. Yeah, it sure does. And, and it really, we we focused. There was there was a couple of areas we we focused on my work and um, just being the leader of the school on our program for inclusive education. So I think um, when I came to the school 15 years ago, there had been a, a strong inclusive education program. The program the director had left, and it was struggling a little bit. And over the years, we've built it into you know I would say one of the top programs, um, and and I think a model. Um, for other schools. Uh, 15 years ago, there weren't a ton of Catholic schools with uh, special education or inclusive education models. Now there's quite a few more, mm-hmm. and many are successful. Uh, but but you know, I think we've been able to prove that you can have a strong inclusive education program, welcome all students without any reduction of really high academic level. Later on the Catholic Schools Today program, Father Richard Petticord and Richard Borsch from Fenwick High School talked to Dr. Jim and Mark about the school's learning resource program. We were just talking uh, in the last segment about the importance of serving students of a variety of backgrounds. And it is neat to hear that Fenwick High School has made this commitment to serving different types of learners, including those who might need particular supports. So why don't we start with you, Father Petticord, as the, as the head of Fenwick High School. Why, why is this important? Why is it important to, to work with those who um, might need those extra supports? 
Well, thanks, Dr. Rigg. It's great to uh, be with you today uh, on the radio. And, you know, at Fenwick, we really do pride ourselves of having a community that is, that is diverse, that is made up of all sorts of people that share our values. And the student services dimension of the school is just another aspect of our commitment to building community and a community that is strong in our Catholic identity, but is also reaching out to underserved populations. That's great. And, um, you know, I think our, our schools have such a good reputation, a well-deserved reputation for academic rigor. Um, and, um, you know, not every student is necessarily ready to jump with both feet into, a, you know, kind of a, a highly rigorous uh, charged environment. So, uh, Richard Borsch, uh, you're the director of college counseling. Tell us a little bit about kind of the specific supports that uh, are offered at Fenwick. I think that one of the things you would be interested in is uh, the fact that we get kids from so many different environments, and sometimes a school that's a selective enrollment school or highly, highly uh, driven toward college placement, people assume that everybody who walks in the building is going to hit the ground running academically at a fairly high pace. This might be illustrative of what what you're asking about and what we see. Um, even on, on the day of the entrance exam, for instance, I've had teachers who are proctoring the exam come in, and we have rooms uh, where kids can get individual testing environments. And they go, why do we have to have that? Uh, and I said, look, we've got homeschool kids. We've got Montessori kids. We've got school kids from schools from all over the metro area, 100 different junior highs, some of whom literally have never taken a standardized test before. And so that's emblematic of how they walk into this environment, which has some very traditional lecture-oriented, content-heavy classes. And if you don't realize that, I think you're being pretty foolish. So we have two people who are uh, special ed certified. Uh, both of them are from our background, from our institution, who are educated here and then on to the college. So, so they help the faculty serve these kinds of kids, particularly in the early years, freshman and sophomore year. I think that's um, a, a wonderful commitment, and I, I know that, uh, first of all, you know, we have seen more and more students in our grade schools identified as needing extra supports or identified as being uh, with special needs of having special needs. And secondly, um, you know, there's a lot of good research behind this. A diagnosis of special needs has nothing to do with intelligence, capability, or potential. Often it's a matter of unlocking a, perhaps a different way of teaching that child or surrounding that child with some extra accommodations and support. Uh, Richard, can you give us uh, some examples of, of what sorts of um, diagnoses and, and things uh, students are coming to Fenwick with? Well, Doctor, you know exactly what, what we're seeing. We get kids with organizational difficulties. We get kids with, who are auditory learners. We get kids who are visual learners, kids who can't work with systems yet until you teach them how to. We have kids who uh, have never had homework by policy of their school, which, as you, as you know, is, a, is somewhat of a, a, a growing trend, not a large trend right now, but a growing trend. And all of that needs to be dealt with. They need to be walked through. Uh, 
if you go back into some of the, some of the research, even in the dark ages when I was going to college, you know the the process of education, Brunner's process of education says you can teach anything to a young person if you break it down into understandable terms, and that goes for systems. Kids can be successful in a very demanding traditional environment if you break down the steps necessary for them to do so. And I think that's basically the approach we take. And this has been, this transition program is relatively recent, within the last seven to eight years, but it's had a wonderful success rate uh, if you look at, you know, the metrics, uh, the success rate in terms of who still is in the seats sophomore year and, and go on. Now, Fenwick has a tremendous, tremendous reputation over the years as being an excellent academic institution. In fact, my former boss at Munline Seminary, Bishop Bob Barron, is a Fenwick right. grad, and he talked about his love for Thomas Aquinas actually became uh, alive at Fenwick. What kind of a curriculum do you, uh, does a Fenwick offer? I mean, that's pretty sophisticated. Thomas Aquinas, and all of a sudden he's a bishop promulgating Aquinas' teachings. Well, I don't mean to steal Father Pettigord's thunder, but I've been here a long, long time, and I, I try to simplify our approach to parents who are considering the school saying, look, the Dominicans go all the way back to the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. to the rise of the universities. And my, my perception of what they their philosophy is you have to be able intellectually to understand morality and your religion and life in general if you're going to be a good school and a good person when you leave this when if we're going to be a good school and they're going to be a good person when they leave and i think what they do is is let kids understand that learning is important in their life Right. Four years of foreign language, that goes all the way back to the Tribune and the Quadrivian uh, in, the, in the medieval universities. I think we're one of the few that still requires four years, four years of theology, of course. Our thanks to Dr. Jim and Mark for highlighting some of the good things happening in our Catholic schools. Stick around now. In a moment, we'll hear about some of the lobby heroes at Catholic Charities, and we'll hear about how we can reach non-Catholics who enter our parishes and our lives. Back after a short break. Catholic Charities invites you to a fabulous evening for a great cause on Friday, February 7th at the 2020 First Look for Charity. This black tie event features live music, gourmet food, cocktails, and an all-access exclusive preview of the Chicago Auto Show, the largest in the nation. Car enthusiasts also get a chance to win a new Ford Explorer just by attending. Join us for this night of elegance and fun. Catholic Charities is one of 18 nonprofit organizations that benefit from the proceeds of First Look for Charity. When you purchase tickets and select Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Chicago as your charity of choice, you'll be supporting programs that provide critical help to people in need. That's First Look for Charity on February 7th. For more information, call 312-948-6797 or visit catholiccharities.net. That's 312-948-6797 or visit catholiccharities.net. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review on Relevant Radio 950 and 930 AM. 
I'm Jim Dish of the Archdiocese of Chicago's Radio TV office with highlights of local Catholic radio programs that can be heard Monday through Friday from 8 to 9 in the morning on 7.50 a.m. This week on Voice of Charity, Marie Jochum and Michael Baer welcome Charles Watson and Jill Friedman, two lobby heroes. They discuss the importance of that first point of contact for all clients, visitors, employees, and volunteers who walk through the doors at Catholic Charities. Let's listen in. Charles is the head security guard at Catholic Charities, um, and Charles has worked with us for nine years, and he works with Catholic Charities closely, but is a member of Monterey Security, one of our great partners who helps make sure that many of our buildings are safe and secure, and also is um, just a great partner in, in a lot of different ways. Um, Charles, what do you like best about this job? I would imagine it's sort of a unique, like even among other guards and other spaces, it's kind of a unique job because, as Michael said, you are part social worker. Yeah, yeah. The best part about it is when people's feeling down, you can always be able to pick them up. And that's just the human side of you, you yeah. know. Yeah. Just put a smile on someone's face is always a plus. You know, you feel like you did a good day's work. So, yeah, I say the best part is being able to help. I love that. And I think you have instilled that in the other security guards as well. So there's um, a team of guys who work under Charles and they all seem, I, I feel when a new guy comes on, it's always, they're always being taught that we treat people with dignity. Yes, and I appreciate that. The next man. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. So we just said how great our partner Monterey is, but what's the least favorite part of your job? Well, it's pretty much the same backstory as not being able to help, you know, mm. when someone come in with tears in their eyes and, yeah. you know, you have no way to help them yeah. and you got to be the person to let them down. And again, that's the human side of you yeah. letting yourself down. So it's like, yeah, it's pretty bad when you're not being able to help. Yeah. 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 I, I think you just highlighted most of most yeah. people's <laughs> best and worst parts of their job, too. Yeah. yeah. So how, how often does it feel like that happens on a daily basis if you were to break it down into like a percentage? Like, is it 90 percent of the time I'm able to help, but 10 percent I'm not able to help? Well, yeah, yeah, about 90 percent you're able to help. Yeah. But a lot of times people is in need and it's over some, you know, outrageous things. And Catholic Charity just can't provide all of that, you right. know, so. You have to find other sources around Chicago, which we can point you to the right direction if they can't help it, you know what I'm saying, for themselves. So, right. yeah. Well, how about you, Joe? What's the best part of being a volunteer with Catholic Charities? I think the best part is that being part of a community. Like I worked mm-hmm. in corporate America for over 30 years, and it, when I stopped working, I, I wanted some place where I could give back and help. And coming to Catholic Charities has has helped that helped me find some place like you're included and people recognize you and I also wanted to add that there are a lot of clients that come in just to talk to Charles. Yeah. He's sitting there and people just walk in and hey, where's my man Charles? And they're always looking for him. So it it's nice to see that that our clients are comfortable here and do stop in to say hello just to to see Charles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they can be themselves, you know. Every right. client isn't the same. So, yeah, they come there, they can be themselves, and, you know, they can get it raw, as they will say. Yeah. <laughs> and I would add, too, Jill, I think you are being very humble because that also happens with you as well. It first certainly yes. happens with Charles and some of the other guards, but also with you, Jill. I've seen folks come in, as, particularly folks at the supper and in the showers, come in and look for you and want to talk to you and want to be present with you. So what are some of those memorable experiences you've had with clients through the years? 
There are, are some, like I've, I run into some clients on the street, which is, is always fun. And I always sort of am careful because sometimes people don't want to be recognized. Right. Sometimes they do. And so when, when they do, I, we acknowledge each other. And I ran into someone the other day and I bought them a cup of coffee and some breakfast. And then awesome. we went on our way. And another funny story was I was on the L one day and I ran into a, a guest and he couldn't remember my name and I couldn't remember his. So he goes, hello, volunteer. And I said, hello, guest. And we rode the L together. And so it's it's just comfortable and it's nice, I think, to help the people that are out there to recognize them and acknowledge them. So yeah. I feel good being able to do that. It's a yeah. community. Yeah, I mean, I, when you were talking, I was thinking about how you had said that what brought you to volunteer was the community. Right. And I think sometimes we think of that as people who, um, maybe the other volunteers or staff, but it's the clients also. Right, exactly. And also I've gotten to know people on the staff and the volunteers, and it's it's just, it's been wonderful. Catholic Charities has done a really, does a really great job. I feel great. Glad that I'm allowed to volunteer there. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll, we'll let you keep going. Thank you. How about you, Charles? What's a, what's a memorable part of your position at Catholic Charities that you can share well, with us? The most memorable part, I will say, it was a young lady that used to come to get services, clothing, food, whatever she can get her hands on. And she always said that, you know, Catholic Charity is the, the best place to be if you're in need of any help. And she always want to give back when she's able to. And like a year, she disappeared, and another following year comes, she popped up, and she's a volunteer now. So that's pretty cool. That's, that's amazing. Awesome. Yeah, that's on, so great. Yeah, she got on her feet. She's uh, doing well, and now she's volunteering her services to Catholic Charity also. So how many clients do you think on a regular basis would each of you estimate that you are interacting with on an average day? Uh, that, that can stretch pretty far. In the beginning, you can start off with maybe 50, 60 people to come in for a food pantry or the clothing closet. But then during the afternoon, we serve 130 clients a day as far as the soup kitchen or the supper meal. So, And then when that is over, we pass out bag lunches. Right. So it can go up to close to 300 people a day. So outside of meals and uh, bag lunches, what are the other types of services that most clients are coming in for? I know you mentioned that there was clothing sometimes and shower programs, and that's what you work with a little bit too, Jill, but are there right. any other services that people are routinely coming in for? Well, yeah, you got the rental assistance, utility assistance. We also have transportation services in case uh, you just got a job and you need transportation to get there. Catholic Charity will provide you transportation to get there until you get your first paycheck, so that's pretty cool also. Yeah. And uh, interview clothes. If you need any professional clothing or anything like that, just come on through the doors and we'll be able to help you out. Come shopping. Exactly. <laughs> it's no joke when we say that our security guards are also social workers. I think you just ran down the list of <laughs> services and programs that we have at Catholic Charities brilliantly. And, um, and I think the wide variety of reasons people come in. Um, but I'd also like to say you're not just working with clients. There are also board members and volunteers who come through and other you know, employees from other sites who come through. So you're greeting all of those folks um, and welcoming them into the building. Our thanks to Charles and Jill and all of the other heroes who make it possible for Catholic Charities to serve those in need. The Office for Evangelization and Missionary Discipleship hosts a monthly show called On the Way. In their latest program, co-hosts Jen Delvao and Jose Coronel invited James Erler and Todd Williamson to talk about how we can reach non-Catholics who enter our parishes and our lives. Here's a highlight. 
wise men set out, and they pretty much know where they're going. They're following the star. They're going to go encounter the king. And then all of a sudden, that king ends up not being in the palace with Herod, but in a lowly manger. And so I know the three of you all have really interesting stories in your journeys, and you've been in ministry for so long uh, with each of you that I'd love to hear a little bit about the unexpected places and times that you hear God showing up in lives. I, for Epiphany, I, I the um, just the the whole experience of of um, of how God breaks into the lives of the of the the Magi is is a model for how God interacts with us as well. Um, I, I'll always I, I'll actually always think of um, uh, Mary and Zechariah and mm-hmm. and the the Canticles of Mary and Zechariah. For those who might not know, the church every morning and every evening praise these ancient Christian hymns from Luke's gospel. And uh, in the morning, it's, it's Zechariah. Uh, and we all know the story of Zechariah. He, he scoffs at Elizabeth being, uh, being found with child. And so the angel says, fine, you're going to be mute until the child is born. <laughs> and um, wh- when John the Baptist is born, the very first words out of Zechariah's mouth is a song of praise. And so the church prays that every morning. And similarly with uh, Mary's song of praise in, in the evening. Anyway, they are both great examples of how God breaks into their mm-hmm. lives and does phenomenal things, things that, that, that shouldn't be, right? Same thing with, with the Magi. So all, all of those are just, I, for me, they're, they're stories of, of, of how God has broken in, into my life um, in unexpected ways. And um, uh, I can't say that I've ever had a dream where I think, <laughs> where, where, where I was convinced that God spoke to me. But God speaks to me through other people and through mm-hmm. experiences and through my family. Yeah, one of the stories that I can share is um, just basically I think would be what got me started on this whole journey in, to, in getting to know who Jesus is. And then my own, uh, I guess, growing in relationship and deepening my relationship with Jesus and the Trinity as well. Um, I guess the story I can tell you is uh, when I first got started in all of this back in my t- when I was about seventeen. Um, I was after mass. I was invited to a retreat. I wasn't really expecting to be invited then, and uh, nonetheless, the uh, the man, the or the young adult, I should say, uh, invited me to the retreat, and I gave many excuses not to go. <laughs> I told them, you know, I'm going to Mexico. I'm going, but I, when I come back, if you're here and if you invite me. And I have the money, and my dad gives me permission, then I'll go. So Famous last words. Exactly. <laughs> then I'll go. <laughs> um, to my surprise, when I came back, so I, I was expecting that he wouldn't remember who I was. He, I was expecting that he would have forgotten my, I guess, what I kind of promised in a sense. And, uh, but I was very surprised and and. And that he just went out to me. He remembered me. He called me by name. Mm-hmm. And he said, Jose, so are you coming to the retreat? And I was just surprised by that. Like, it was just unexpected. And like you said, Todd, no, God speaks to us in, like, in different ways through people, being one of them. And this is, how, I think, how God started to work in my life. Well, he's always been working, right? But, uh, but in a more, I guess, way that I, like reflect now and see him that he was there and it was his invitation to get to know him. How about you, James? 
Yeah, the, the thinking of the Epiphany story, one of the details that I love is that the the Magi, uh, at, at, towards the end of that Gospel, it says they, they went back by another way. They didn't go back home the same way that they came. And um, for me, that, that, that brings up a memory. Um, once upon a time, I was studying to be a Jesuit priest, and one, one of the things that they make the novices do now is this experience called pilgrimage. And, and basically what it is is that the novice master asks you to live homeless for a number of weeks. Mm, and I wow. started out the pilgrimage in uh, Kansas City, Kansas. My, my novitiate, we were living at the cathedral at that time. It happened to be Ash Wednesday, the day that we started, and um, the, the celebrant of the Mass was Bishop Nauman, who actually was the bishop who confirmed me. And so get sent out on this three-week journey from Los Angeles to Milwaukee, you know, just having to rely upon other people to literally survive. And um, I actually wound up getting back to Kansas City, Kansas, but I was put up in, in a motel by these people I met on a train, and um, so I was far, far away, but I wanted to go back to the cathedral for um, to, just to visit with the priests who, who we were living with there. Um, and so, the, you know, leaving on the pilgrimage heading west, I, um, you know, I went that way, but coming back to the cathedral, I was going back a completely different way. I actually had to walk something like 20 miles that day and wound up just in time for Stations of the Cross. So... I think it's, you know, it's just interesting the journeys that God takes us all on. Sure, James, you had to up us on that. That's a fantastic story. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) It was pretty intense, but, you know, we we all, we made it. You know, Jose made a great point a a minute ago when you were talking, and you said, you said, um, well, God's always been active in my life. Mm -hmm. And and I I think I think that's a, a terribly important point to make for the listeners. And, and and we in ministry, we recognize in the whole experience of evangelization and uh, uh, my, my Ballywick is the RCIA, which mm-hmm. is the same principle is, is at work there. And the principle is God is always active in our lives. God is always present to mm-hmm. us. And those experiences, those, you know, like the Magi had or like any of us have had, James and, and Jose, yours, those are the moments when we recognize God's presence. It's, it's, it's always there. Right. And this month I'm doing a couple of trainings for some of our evangelization efforts. And one of the things we talk about in the small group training is that recognition that God's always at work. You know, when we have these people walking in our doors for, be it, you know, people who already are comfortable jumping in for RCIA or who just drop into an event because, you know, they're invited by their friend or because it happens to cross their path, that we can sometimes as church people think, you know, we have to bring Jesus to them. We have to bring the church to them. We have to do all of these things and that we're starting from scratch. But rather, it's taking the time to listen and to accompany people so that we can see, you know, where God is present. And to instead of saying, I'm going to, you know, make this thing from nothing, rather to just lift out and to name, you know, Jose, you talked about being called by name, and I think sometimes it's also helping people name where Jesus and his efforts have been working in their lives to date. And I think that's one of the things I really love about the unexpected ways that God shows up, because all of a sudden people start to make those connections yeah. in their lives. Yeah, and, and realize and, and, and can help come to that realization that, oh, wow, he's, he's always been here. Mm-hmm. James, you talk a lot about that. 
Yeah, and I, you know, one of the things that I think is is really important is that God is always there and God is always loving. One of the things that I've found, you know, in, in my years of ministry is just kind of the poor images that people have of God, that God is kind of a tyrant or God you know, is, is some people say like the cosmic scoreboard, like you know, <laughs> sins against all, all the good things you do. What God wants is, is you know, to, to have a life and have a loving relationship with each one of us. And I think, you know, you, you mentioned the word discernment, Jen. One, one of the, when people are, you know, discerning whether it's, you know, should I take this job? Should I, you know, enter religious life, well, should I get married, any, any of those things, the, the, the bottom line is that God just wants to love us, and, and a lot of times we, we can get caught up in, in you know, our own heads and, and thinking about, well, what do I need to do? It's like, well, grow closer to God, number one. Definitely. And, you know, that's so important, I think, in today's world to really help people see and understand and to feel that presence of a loving God because there is so much brokenness and so much hurt and pain in the world. And I think that, you know, that question of the, you know, how can bad things happen to good people and how come I experience this loss or this person I care about is suffering so is a a really important part, I think, of accompanying people and, you know, what we talk about with evangelization because that's completely uh, a legitimate lived experience that's very hard to navigate. And Pope Francis just talks about that mm-hmm. all the time, yeah. just accompanying people, walking. And and really, that's that like we've been saying that uh, people who can can help others um, point out God's presence in their lives. Yeah, and you know, so many people think evangelization is I'm going to stand on a soapbox or I'm going to hand out pamphlets, or I'm going to knock on doors, but it really is listening to people's stories and being able to lift out where God is present and what we're called to do. So this idea of discernment, and it's a concept that I pretty much never hear anywhere else besides Catholic circles. No, you don't. Ever. <laughs> you know, of the many, many things that I talk about with my friends and my mother, you know, that is a word that does not ever get tossed around. So, James, I know this is something you have a lot of experience with uh, from a lot of different sides. So I was curious if you could let us know what is discernment? Sure. So I, I think, you know, you mentioned the Catholic context. The, the sermon is, is is really asking the question: What, you know, how how can I grow closer to God? What is God asking of me? Once upon a time, when I was discerning entering religious life, a, a, a priest gave me a really really helpful pointer. I was like, you know, what's God's will for me? What's God's will for me? And he he said, you you know. There, there is no one will of God for you right now. The, the, the only thing is for you to love God and let God love you. Um, and, and so I, I think, you know, in, in our Catholic tradition, we are so blessed to have just an abundance of resources to help people discover, you know, how, how is it that I can grow closer to God? And, and, and it's really, really tactile and, and practical, you know, for people who are thinking of switching jobs or you know, choosing a state in life and, and just having a lot of questions, especially for, for younger people, um, you, you know, just the resources in, in terms of prayer and, 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 you know, how you discern and, and, and what you do. I, we, we are so, so blessed as Catholics to have that. And, and you mentioned my experience. So just, you, you know, 
I, you know, I, I studied a lot of um, Jesuit spirituality. St. Ignatius Loyola is, is a patron of, of discernment, and in his spiritual exercises, basically a, a, a retreat to help people discover, okay, how, how can I live my life with God? And it's interesting, you know, you coming out of the, the Office of Evangelization, Jen and Jose, because the, the Alpha experience, it, it kind of it mirrors a little bit of what the spiritual exercises do as people, you know, they, they, they just grow closer to God. And, and through that, lo- looking into our hearts and, and, and praying about it, it's like, well, where am I going to find the peace of Christ, and where am I going to be able to live in mission with Christ? James, how is discernment different from deciding? Because I think there's, I think there's a, there's a huge difference, isn't there? There there is. There, there, there was the joke that um, we we used to say of our superiors in in the Jesuits, you know, that they would tell us, "You discern, I decide." (laughs) (laughs) That vow of obedience. Discernment is 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 looking into yourself and, and 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 looking to where God is at work in your life and and. And really saying, okay, where where are the things that lead me to greater faith, hope, and love, and and from that a decision might might arise, but but it could just be, well, you know, I I need to really pay attention to those moments in in, in my life, you know, like for people who 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 like volunteering and and, and getting out and, and helping people, that can be a great source of of consolation for them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to decide to, you know, well, I'm going to throw away my life as a lawyer or teacher or whatever and just do that. So there is a difference between them. I don't know about you guys, but um, my experience of discernment is, is, yes, there's there's an individual component, right? Like Mm -hmm. me, there's there's work that I need to do. And, And it's about coming to greater clarity on something, on a situation or an experience. But it always, always, always for me involved at least one other person. Yes. yes. That, that it's something that it uh, that it's something that that happens with an, uh, another brother uh, or sister, another Christian, mm-hmm. who helps me come to some greater clarity. Or maybe it's one or two people, mm-hmm. but it's it's never me by myself. Yeah, I, I I would say it's the two components: the personal component, where it's yourself, where you like James said, you look into yourself and see where God is. Uh, where God is leading you to, how you can grow in that love. But it's also that uh, sense of you're within a community, right? And the community also kind of, uh, you ask for their input and they, what they see, where they see God leading you. And it's like um, affirming as well if what you are looking inside of you and the community is reflecting that as well. Or the community might not re- be reflecting that, then that leads you to discern even more, right? Yeah. Where is God really leading me? What is God trying to tell us? Yeah, yeah and I know there's uh, spiritual directors, which I'm guessing we're very used to, if not have our own. But Highly supportive of spiritual direction. So yep. am I, most definitely. Yep. You know, and James, uh, I'm going to rely on you again to tell our listeners a little bit about what is a spiritual director. Sure. So, so we were talking a little bit about accompaniment before. I, the the role of a spiritual director is to accompany an individual and really to to listen in on on their prayer. You know, it's it's different than other helping professions. It's not a not a therapist. It's not a psychologist. Not 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 something like that. A spiritual director is listening to to the movements and and people's prayer as they're describing them. And, you know, if needed, to, to really point people in directions or, or ask questions of them. 
So spiritual directors have, have been really, really impactful in, in my life. I've been blessed to, to accompany some, some people in, in that fashion. And it, it's a really, it, it's such a moving thing. And it, a spiritual director can, can really, we were talking about God showing up in unexpected ways. Sometimes a, a question that they pose or, or an insight that they offer can, can really help people in their relationship with God. And spiritual direction is not just for professionals, not just for religious professionals. Mm -hmm. Any Catholic can go Mm -hmm. and seek out a spiritual director. I mean, I know for me the difference that it makes. There was a period of time where because of shift in job and where I was based, I was trying to figure out, you know, a spiritual director and what made sense because I was, you know, the previous one was right by where I worked. And now that was almost an hour drive away, which— In Chicago, that's not something you want to deal with extra driving if you don't have to. Uh, and so I was looking and looking. And then all of a sudden, I found one. Didn't work. A couple months later, found another one. And we just clicked. And the I always – there's a part of me, and you guys know me. Uh, I like answers. I want somebody to just tell me so that I can then do the next thing. And so I usually start off the first maybe like five, ten minutes of really having to push that aside in spiritual direction. But then by the end of it, there's just this peace. And there's also so much silence, which in the chaos of life and the busyness and the constant doing, I know is something that at first takes a little while to settle in and kind of make that transition. But then I think that's one of the the gifts of spiritual direction is not only the accompaniment and the questions, but that permission to just be still yeah. because that's not something our society gives permission for often. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. It's such a, such a holy and privileged the space that, that is created. It, it, it was tough when I was getting trained to be a spiritual director. One of the things that the uh, father Bill Creed and Mark Andrews told us was, you know, wait 10 seconds before you say anything. If there's a <laughs> moment of silence, that's mm-hmm. tough. Like, because you want, you want to engage in the conversation and everything. But, but really, it, it, it allows people the, the space and the time to, to process how God is working with them. There's a distinct possibility since my uh, director is Ignatian trained that now I'm going to sit there in my next session next week and count to 10 to just see if that's her <laughs> thing or not. We'll have to see. Um, you know, the spiritual directors are something that might seem difficult to find, but it's something that a lot of parishes have people on staff or who are parishioners who are trained in various traditions. So it's something, if this is a way that you think could help you in your spiritual journey to reach out to your parish and find out what opportunities might exist and uh, to pursue that and to do so not only for yourself, but by experiencing that. And, you know, I know Jose is over here kind of nodding at me, too, that it's also the opportunity to experience that which we can then do for others. You know, and time and again, we talk about the importance of accompaniment in evangelization. And, you know, like I was saying with that silence, we can often want to jump in and we want to fill it and we want to say this is the answer. This is who God is versus giving space for the person to tell their story, to come to be able to name where God is present in their lives. And I think spiritual direction, when you experience that, then becomes all the easier for you to manifest that for other people. Yeah. And if, 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 and, and if the, your parish doesn't offer it, if your parish doesn't, mm-hmm. anybody on staff would certainly be able to point you to Wh- yes. wh- you know, where to find a, a good spiritual director. Yeah, yeah. I I know that was one thing when I was looking around after I had relocated. That was my first question. And uh, I think every staff person had three or four people they could recommend, even though there wasn't uh, somebody in the parish that was actually doing it. So it was a great way to connect. 
James, I know we're coming up with just about a minute or so before we have to go. Do you have any last thoughts on discernment for us? Well, I, I would say a lot of times in our prayer as Catholics, we're, we're, we're pointing ourselves towards God and we offer prayers towards God. But really in, in the space of spiritual direction and discernment, it's claiming, how is God working with me? There's something really powerful about writing it down or actually saying it aloud to another person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just, it's kind of like confession. I, 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 I was taught once that when you go to confession, if you name your sins, you have power over them. And if you're able to name how God is working in your life, then you're letting God have that power over you. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Our thanks to James, Todd, Jen, and Jose for that great conversation. Stay tuned. After a short break, we'll meet a deacon from Cameroon. Back in a moment. Catholic Charities invites you to a fabulous evening for a great cause on Friday, February 7th at the 2020 First Look for Charity. This black tie event features live music, gourmet food, cocktails, and an all-access exclusive preview of the Chicago Auto Show, the largest in the nation. Car enthusiasts also get a chance to win a new Ford Explorer just by attending. Join us for this night of elegance and fun. Catholic Charities is one of 18 nonprofit organizations that benefit from the proceeds of First Look for Charity. When you purchase tickets and select Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Chicago as your charity of choice, you'll be supporting programs that provide critical help to people in need. That's First Look for Charity on February 7th. For more information, call 312-948-6797 or visit catholiccharities.net. That's 312-948-6797 or visit catholiccharities.net. Welcome back to Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Our final segment this week comes from the Mission Matters Show, where Mission Education and Appeals Coordinator Megan Mio talked with Deacon Michael Neva of St. Margaret Mary Parish in Chicago. Deacon Neva shared his story of his calling to become a deacon and of becoming a missionary who advocates for his home community in Cameroon. Let's take a listen. So good morning, Deacon Neva. Good morning, Ms. Mio. Thank you for having me on the program and for the opportunity to share with your listeners the works of the Father John Corkman Foundation in the context of a mission. Sure, of course. I'd like to start by saying that the Father Kolkman Foundation participated in our summer mission co-op this past year, this past summer, and we were blessed to have Deacon Neba attend and serve at our recent um, global mission mass and reception that was held this past October 2019 uh, at St. Ferdinand Parish. Um, I hope it was a good experience, Deacon Neba. I think you were the one who were giving it, it all or some of the appeals this past summer on behalf of the foundation. Yes, I did mm-hmm. in three parishes across the archdiocese. Lovely. And you served as the deacon, the, the uh, deacon of the word for our global mission mass with Cardinal Supich. And to my memory, what really stuck out in my memory was that you chanted uh, and, and sung the gospel reading at that Mass. What was that like? Well, the first verse of Psalm 95 invites us to make a joyful noise. Chanting, which is a rich inheritance of our Catholic tradition, mm-hmm. when applied to the gospel, is an appropriate response to that invitation. Mm-hmm. It was a joy to invite the faithful at that Mass 
to listen to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in chant. Mm -hmm. There is a difference when you recite the words, for example, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Mm -hmm. That's an excerpt from the gospel of that mass. Mm -hmm. So like I said, there is a difference when you recite mm -hmm. and when you chant, mm -hmm. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That gospel chant raised the dignity and solemnity of that mission liturgy in a special way. Mm -hmm. When Cardinal Supich commented on it in his homily. He commented when I brought the book of the gospel for him to kiss. The first thing he said is, you have a good voice. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing he noticed. I'm sure there were other things, as you said, yes. more important um, mm. uh, effects that that had on him and the rest of the congregation. Thank yeah. you so much for serving at that Mass. It was wonderful to have you there. You're welcome. Um, so I mentioned at the start that you serve at St. Margaret Mary Parish uh, in Chicago. And so I'd just like to for you to introduce yourself. Tell us about yourself. You're a deacon here in the diocese, right? Yes. And how long have you... Doing that. 16th of May this year will make me 16 years as a deacon incarnated in the Archdiocese of Chicago. Oh, Originally, I was born in Cameroon mm -hmm. and specifically in the Archdiocese of Bamenda. Mm -hmm. I came to the United States in 1985 as a student in the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And I've gone, after completing my undergraduate, I went down to Kansas State University. Mm -hmm. Then to Michigan State University, moved to Chicago, and within two or three years, I w w went to the Institute of Diagonal Studies at Mondelein, oh. uh, University of the Lake, okay. and that's how I eventually got ordained as a deacon for the Archdiocese in May of two May 16, 2004. I am, of course, uh, a married deacon. Mm -hmm. I have a wife, Florence, and four boys with ages from 13 to 21. Oh, boy. Teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> In my family, I am the first of six ch children. Mm -hmm. uh, only three of those children are living. Four boys, two girls. We have two boys and one girl living today. Mm -hmm. My mother is about 78. She's still uh, around, still alive. Wonderful. Yes. Mm -hmm. In my circular world, aside from the uh, St. Margaret Mary, I also work as the Director of Information Systems for the City of Chicago, specifically in the inf uh, Information Security Office. Wow, -wee. that's a big job. <laughs> it is. These days, it's getting harder and harder to have that yeah. security. <gasps> wow, okay. So and you, I was just curious, I mean, maybe that's related to your career then. What were you studying at the different universities here? I started off doing uh, with agricultural engineering okay. at the University of Minnesota. Mm -hmm. I grew up in a farm situation, and I always okay. thought I would. Uh, I told my grandmother an interesting story, uh, or rather, I had an experience planting, and I had wounds all over my hands, and I complained to her and said, is there no better way you can do work on the farm without right. using just your fingers? And he yeah. said, well, my grandson, if there was a way, I'll tell you. And I said, okay, when I grow up, I will find a way. That and sounds that's like what, a challenge. Yeah, yeah. So that's what got me to <laughs> agri-engineering. Oh, 
okay. And then I further on did uh, agricultural mechanization. Mm-hmm. And I went back to Cameroon. Uh, the, some of the centers where I was expected to work, they had closed them down. And then they had an economic crisis in the country. Mm-hmm. Then I came back to further my education, yeah, hoping yeah. I would go back somewhere. Mm-hmm. But um, then at that time, I did technology management and systems uh, science. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, when I look now in retrospect, it would appear God was, I was planning something else and God was rerouting me, <laughs> preparing me for a mission somewhere else. Yeah, right. Yeah, this wasn't what you expected Yes. for this to go, but... Mm-hmm. Um, but it's worked out in so many wonderful ways. Yeah. So, so then you came to become a deacon after you'd completed your studies, and by that time, had you decided you would be living here, or you still were kind of going back and forth? To I come? had made up my mind that I would live here. Mm-hmm. And actually, I was working at the, at the city at the time, mm-hmm. and I decided, okay, I'm just going to go into this now. I know you are going to come <laughs> back asking sometime, then how did you decide to become a deacon? Yeah. Right. Oh, that's coming next. Well, I mean, and sometimes it's hard to put into words, but I mean, because you were married, of course, by that time, yes. you need to be married in mm-hmm. order to make this this decision, yeah. discern the vocation to the deacon, diaconate. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're kind of like, I don't, this isn't, this is going to sound bad because vocation is a full-time thing, but mm-hmm. you serve as a deacon sort of part-time because you do have a full-time day job, yeah. quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, which you know, deacons are all different in that sense, but this is your situation. Um, so how do you see it? How do you see yourself kind of balancing it all, I guess, or juggling these multiple responsibilities? Um, I And your family. Th- there, there, are, yeah. there are three pieces here. You have a family, and then you have the church, and then you have the secular world. The way I look at it is... Uh, that I look at it as a sort of a triangle. Now, a triangle is a three-sided object, Mm -hmm. and there are various descriptions of a triangle. Mm -hmm. You can have an equilateral and an isosceles triangle. All right. So So in myself, I see myself as sitting in the middle of that triangle or at any one time moving around those three sides of the triangle. You can never deal... You can never get rid of any one side of that triangle. Otherwise, you lose the balance. Mm-hmm. There will be time when you will have to give equal proportions. That's when you have both, uh, both mm-hmm. sides of the triangle are equal. Mm-hmm. At some times, it will be that the family demand is high, so that's when now you have a skewed triangle. Mm-hmm. It could be the church. So mm-hmm. it just mm-hmm. depends on how uh, you do it. It's what uh, St. Paul, uh, when he advises... Uh, Timothy and Titus that the deacon has to be one who knows how to manage their time. So you really then have to learn to how you manage your time. And of course, uh, when you have a wife, it makes it a plus because there are some times when that time management may be overemphasized on another side and she's just there to say, hey, look, step back. Reminder, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's always better when you have a partner, I yes. think, just in general, because sometimes we yeah. can't see things about ourselves. Yeah. Um, but you felt that calling during all that time then when you were studying and, and you said to yourself, now looking back, you know, God was working in all of that, slowly kind of calling you to something that you weren't really seeing yet at that time. Exactly. Um, in the beginning, uh, growing up as a child, I've always had the aspiration to be a priest. 
And all of the attempts that I made to go into a seminary, even including when I finally came here, they all failed. So again, it underscores that probably God was doing something else. Now, did somebody actually tell me be a deacon? Probably no. I was exposed to two deacons. Uh, One uh, of the name, Washington, Deacon Washington, I met him in Lansing at the time when I was at Michigan State University. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This is the first time that I saw a black clergy in the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And from his vestments, I knew it was a deacon. But I've been used to transitional deacons. So after Mass, I went and I asked, so when is your ordination to the priesthood? And he said, no, this is me. And this is my wife. And I stood back and I said, Uh what? Mm -hmm. So we became friends. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I moved to Chicago and I met Deacon Duffy, who is of late now, at St. Henry Parish. And that's the parish where I was. And later on, we became friends. He used to invite me to go and help him out, to, just to follow him and see what he was doing in the nursing home. He would take communion there. I hated the nursing home. I didn't want to go there. <laughs> but he insisted and insisted and somehow dragged me. Wow. And before I realized it, he, some days he would say, I can't go, you go. So these two deacons, don't, none of them never really invited me and said, do you want to be de-? They didn't ask the question. Mm-hmm. But somehow, one day I'm telling my wife, I think I would really <laughs> want to consider this diaconate. Mm. But praying over it, and she wasn't really very supportive of the whole idea. I said, no, you've got too many baggages, and this, 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 yeah. this. Yeah. Wow. And after about two years, we were sitting in a family dinner with some friends who had visited out of town. Mm-hmm. It's a social conversation, and from nowhere, she just pops up a phrase, if you want to go be a deacon, I have no problem with it. And then everybody looked mm-hmm. around the table, and no further com- comment or conversation on it. And the next day, I called Mondaline, or that rather the diaconate office, and my admission process started. Right. Yes. <laughs> you had the permission. <laughs> Something had changed. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, you know, I was just say, it's hard sometimes to even explain well, it was a journey, you know, it was a process of, yeah. of looking and, and meeting people. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes those relationships are way more important than a person asking the question. Exactly. Have you thought about becoming mm-hmm. a deacon or, or whatever the case? Father John Kolkman Foundation um, is focused on health care and services to rural communities, uh, specifically around sickle cell disorder in Cameroon. Um, so... The foundation has this name. I'm sure it's someone very significant um, for the communities in Cameroon. Could you say a little bit about how you got involved and who Father John Kolkman was? Yes. Uh, before I do that, I would uh, say uh, that the foundation, as part of a ministry, uh, mm-hmm. it, it fits within the whole concept of the church. Yeah. Uh, every deacon has a ministerial agreement mm-hmm. with the parish where he serves. And on my ministerial agreement, the foundation is actually listed as one of those in areas that are involved in activities. If you want to hear that entire conversation, go to radiotv.archchicago.org. That's where you can listen to all our local Catholic radio programs live or at your convenience, radiotv.archchicago.org. Thanks for listening to us every Saturday morning here on Relevant Radio, 950 and 930 a.m. I'm Jim Dish for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. Have a great weekend, everyone. Join us every Saturday morning for Catholic Chicago Week in Review. 
You can stream our programs live or listen to past programs by visiting our website, archchicago.org, and clicking on Radio TV. And please connect with Catholic Chicago on social media.